All right, good morning. For any of those of you that I do not know, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I don't regularly teach on Sunday mornings. Mainly, I uh, work in the operations side of the church, but I am, uh, I am really happy to be with you. Um, we have uh, our teaching pastor, our lead pastor, Seth Shelton, as Matt mentioned, on an extended trip into Senegal. He's led two trips out of the capital to work in the two villages that we have uh, worked with there. And we have just seen such an amazing outpouring of God's Spirit in this trip. Uh, I believe at last count we've had six professions of faith. They were able to baptize one of the new believers. It's, it's been amazing. I can't wait till they get back and we hear more about it. It's, um, it's a little hard to communicate with them when they're, uh, when they're over there. So then we're blessed as a congregation to have Matt, our worship pastor, uh, being a talented preacher in his own right and an aspiring church planner, and he's been with us the last two weeks. And uh, those messages have just been wonderful. But we really thought uh, in this weekend that Matt and Amy would be new parents. So when they slotted out the preach counter, they plugged me in here. Uh, baby Nora has been more stubborn than we anticipated. So Matt and Amy are with us this weekend. But I am still happy uh, to be with you and to open up God's Word. We are going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. There is a version live event out there if you want to navigate to that or open your Bible. Or if you don't have a Bible, in the uh, seat in front of you, underneath the seat in front of you, there is a black hardback Bible. And this passage is on page 869 in that Bible. All right, let's read our text. Starting in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. All right, let's pray really quick and then we'll dive into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we uh, are so grateful that we can come together in this place and study your Word. And, uh, and we just want to acknowledge, Father, we, we know that it is not the case for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world that they can travel freely to a place of worship and sit under Bible teaching. We just ask, Father, that you would protect me from any error in the proclamation of your word, that you would be glorified among us here this morning, and, uh, and that those who have come to hear your word would receive it, Father, and it would accomplish your purpose. We ask this, Father, in your holy name, in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Okay, so one of the things that I really like to do, enjoy doing, as a matter of fact, as I'm teaching, whether it be in a large group like this or in a small group setting where I primarily teach, is to make sure that we've set the passage that we're going to study in the proper context, in the first century context. How would the first century readers of this word or the people who initially heard this teaching have received it? 
A great example of why this is important uh, is found in a sermon that Matt preached to us on the Good Samaritan. Well, you and I hear the Good Samaritan, and to our modern ears, it doesn't hit with any tension. We all want to be a Good Samaritan, right? It's, it's come to mean that. It's come to mean a good person. There's a, even a charity, Samaritan's Purse, that does great work all over the world. Well, as Matt taught us in that sermon, the Samaritans were a nation that was despised by Israel. They believe nothing good can come from Samaria. As a matter of fact, if their travels, and keep in mind they traveled on foot, if their travels took them near Samaria, they would go the long way around, sometimes adding hours and even days to their journey so that they didn't have to cut through the land of Samaria. They hated the Samaritans. So for Jesus to hold up a Samaritan as an example would be me, like me telling you about this really great axe murderer that I met, and you should really try to be like him, okay? And that's the tension that it landed with from the first century hearers, okay? So that's why it's so important for us to set this in context. So let's, let's endeavor to do that. Mary and Martha, and they have a brother named Lazarus, are Jesus' close friends. We know this from other passages in Scripture, Okay? We also know from other passages in Scripture that they live in Bethany. In our passage, it just refers to it as a village, but it is Bethany. Bethany is located two miles east of Jerusalem. And as people were traveling into the city, which would have been a regular pattern of life in ancient Israel, to go to the temple to worship, appointed festivals and feasts, regular travel to Jerusalem would have been something they did throughout the year. So being located two miles east of the city was a natural place to stop, okay? Now, there was not a Holiday Inn in Bethany. You did not cash in your credit card miles and get a room at the Hilton. You relied on people who lived in that village to open up their homes to you and provide hospitality. And Bethany, being on this path, would have been used to providing hospitality to their countrymen as they came and went. Side note, I think this is really interesting. Hopefully somebody else will. This town still exists today. It's a, it's a town in the West Bank. I absolutely cannot pronounce the name of it. I tried. But the translation is Place of Lazarus. Okay? And the oldest building in this town is a private home that's, that's over 2,000 years old. And it is reported to be this very home that Martha and Mary received Jesus into. I have no idea if that's true, but I think it's interesting. It's a good story. All right. So let's start to, to build the, the context here. Uh, John Bloom wrote a, a great article on this, and he points out that as we learned back um, during one of Matt's sermons, I believe it was two weeks ago, that uh, there are 72 people approximately traveling with Jesus, and he sent them out, and they preached and proclaimed throughout the countryside, and then they've come back. Okay, So they're now traveling with Jesus again. And Jesus' fame at this point is really, he's close to the pinnacle of his ministry, so he's going to attract locals uh, to come and hear him preach. And so it is very likely that as, Ma- as Martha is inviting Jesus into her home, she's inviting up to 100 people into her home. Okay? All right, so we'll put Martha over here. Start to feel that weight on Martha. You are Jesus' close friend. There's no place else for them to stay. You're going to invite them into their home, and then you find out he's traveling with up to 100 people. Okay, so you've got to add to this. It starts to build on her. In the Near East, they placed an extremely high cultural premium on hospitality, okay? 
You've seen this depicted in literature and, and movies and books and, and elsewhere throughout the Bible. We will make you bread with the finest flour. We will, we will give you our choicest of meats. Please come stay in my home. It is a cultural um, value that they just they place such a high importance on. And it has a keen fear of dishonoring guests. Okay? And and to the first century mindset, not, not only are you required to provide hospitality to strangers that you don't know and are nobodies, okay, and provide them a great hospitality, it is it is your cultural value. But the more important the guest, the the grander that hospitality needs to be. Because you're living in an honor and shame culture. Okay? So your culture values hospitality. If you don't meet the expectations for hospitality, you're going to bring shame on your family. Well, Martha is a friend of Jesus's. And we don't know at this point all that she understands, okay? We see different levels of understanding among the disciples, but, but, it's, but it's reasonable to assume that she knows he is the Messiah, okay? Now, what she understands the Messiah to be be it the son of God or a military leader come, political leader to come, we don't know. But, but she would have known that Jesus was the most important person in Israel. She may not know that he's the most important person in all of human history in the entire universe. That's pressure that maybe she couldn't handle at that time. But she knows that he's the most important person of all of Israel. Okay? It says in the beginning of this passage that this is Martha's home. Okay, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So she's the owner of this home. It's likely that she's the oldest sibling. She may be widowed, we don't know, but she owns this home. So that means she is the responsible party. Okay, so let's start to feel this, feel, feel what this, this pressure this is putting on Martha. Your, your friend, the Messiah, has come to your home. He's brought a hundred people with him, you must provide hospitality, and, and it's your responsibility to pull all this off. It's, it's a crushing burden that's laid on Martha. And then just think of the logistics. It would not have been acceptable to give this party your leftovers if there were such thing in an age before refrigeration. You had to create everything from scratch, all right? And, and there's no running water in the home. And, and you know, as people in the first century traveled from town to town, they traveled on dusty roads and they wore sandals. And it was imperative that you as a good host provide them water to wash their feet. How many trips to the well just to provide enough water for everybody to wash their feet? How many trips to the well for enough water for everyone to drink? Much less the water required in the food preparation. Okay, That's the burden that Martha is sitting under as we come into this passage. All right, let's talk about Mary. J.P. Lang, in his commentary on this, points out what is a perfectly reasonable fact. It's not biblical, so I'm going to refer to it as speculation, but I think it's perfectly reasonable, that Mary was most likely helping with the domestic chores prior to Jesus' arrival. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to assume. She lived in the house with her sister. She was helping, okay? But at some point, after his arrival, quote directly from Lang, but soon afterwards, she had seen that she could now use her time, more, her precious time, more profitably. So sometime after Jesus' arrival, Mary realizes that she has to leave her sister and all this work that needs to be done 
and all these expectations that are on her family, and she has to go and receive Jesus' teaching. And we don't know exactly what she, she understood at that point. We have the whole arc of Jesus' ministry to look at, so there's plenty of things that she could have understood. Maybe she understood because Jesus is, is proclaiming his, his imminent death throughout the pages of Luke. Maybe she understands that he's not going to be with them much longer. And she needs to take advantage of this opportunity to sit and receive his teaching. Maybe she understands that he has the keys to eternal life. And, the, and, and, and there's nothing that she won't do to, to receive that knowledge. Whatever it is, she realizes that she has to go and receive his teaching. So the text says that Mary sat at the Lord's feet. And we kind of hear that as modern people as, as a little bit of a demeaning place to sit. You know, maybe a child would sit at your feet or maybe, maybe a pet would sit at your feet. That's not what's in view here at all. It is referring to studying with a rabbi as a disciple. Okay? In Luke chapter 4, verses 20, starting verse 20, we read, as Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, uh, we read that he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And when we hear that, if I close up my Bible and go sit down, what's going to happen? You guys are going to, oh, that is the best sermon ever. It was only 12 minutes. I have no idea what he said, but we're going to be the first ones to lunch, right? And Matt and the band are going to have to scramble to get back up here. But, but that's not what it meant in the first century. When you sat down, you sat down to teach. The rabbi sat, the disciples sat around him. So she is sitting at his feet. She's taking the place of a disciple. She's, she's boldly including herself in Jesus' innermost circle. Okay? This is unheard of for this culture. In this culture, women were not thought worthy to receive an education. As a side note, it's one of the things that makes Christianity in the first century and continuing so radical. Okay? In this first century context, women weren't to receive education. They weren't to be spoken to. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Their husband could divorce them for any reason. Just had to write it on a slip of paper. We're divorced. Hand it over. Many rabbis had speculated that any reason was permissible, even a dissatisfaction with dinner, with a meal. They had no rights. Christianity comes along and Jesus receives women into his inner circle. He teaches them. He, he leads them to understand that they are made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, just as men are. They have equal dignity and equal worth. And, and, and that's a radical a radical idea for first century. So it's, so it's unheard of for a woman to sit at the feet of a rabbi and receive teaching. And in this culture, here, Violet McDaniel, in her article on the subject, puts it this way. Men were not to converse with women in public or even give a woman a greeting when they passed on the street. The oral law stated, let no one talk with a woman in the street. No, not with his own wife. The rabbis taught that there were not to be saluted or spoken to in the streets and not to be instructed in the law. In a traditional Jewish village, and Bethany is very much a traditional Jewish village, girls were not given regular schooling, but a girl's mother taught her what she needed to know so that she would be able to fulfill her role as wife and mother. Add to this, in a middle-class home in this area of uh, Judea, uh, which we assume this is because it's holding this number of people, 
all right? The house was divided into two sections, a public section where men would, would greet and conduct business, and, and we have early second century texts talking about rabbis coming into people's homes and teaching. That was a regular practice. And, and so this would have been the public area, and it would have been the domain of the men. And then in a totally separate area of the house, they would have expected the women to prepare the food. So it's, it's a physical space she's not even supposed to be occupying. So let's go back to where it says that she sat at the Lord's feet because we missed something in there in our modern translation. If you look at the, that phrase in the original language, you would see that it is the only time that that is used in the New Testament. And what it means is that she sat right beside his feet. Okay? So Mary is not sitting at the back of the group hoping that nobody notices that she's, she's come for the teaching. She's not hiding over in an alcove, hoping nobody notices her. She is boldly going and sitting in the front of the class to receive this teaching. Okay? So then we come back to Martha. Well, first, let's, let's finish with Mary. So we saw over here, Martha is just being crushed by the culture, the expectations, the weight of it all. And Mary is crushing all of the cultural expectations on her. She, she, is, she is not worried about uh, shame that might be brought in her family. She's not worried about providing hospitality. She's not worried about um, where she's supposed to be in relation to the other gender. She's not worried about whether or not she's supposed to be receiving this teaching. She is boldly going after this teaching. She's boldly placing herself as one of Jesus' disciples. So Martha has finally had enough. She's overcome with the burden. She's not getting any help from Mary. Who knows what she's done. I'm sure she's, you know, maybe banged some pans together. Maybe there were some exasperated sighs. She's tried to get her attention and she can't. She's just had enough and she's so mad that she's willing to humiliate her sister in front of Jesus. And she goes to him. And she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Okay, I want us to read that again, but I want you to think about something. Mary, Martha is so convinced of the righteousness of her position that she does not wait for Jesus to answer her. She, she asks her question and then immediately tells him what to do. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And the thing is that everyone in that room would have been on her side. Keep in mind, Mary's crushing social conventions. Everyone in that room would have thought that Martha was pleading the righteous case. Why is your sister here? Why is she not helping you? How, how can you bear this burden alone? Everyone in that room was on her side. Everyone that is, except for Jesus. And he says starting in verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. In the original language, that good portion is Agatha Merida. It, really mean, it, it actually means the very best thing, and it has a culinary uh, overtone. So what Jesus is saying 
is he's saying, Martha, you are worried about this meal. And Mary has chosen the very best meal possible. And that brings us to, to our central theme and, and what we have to wrestle with today. Our central theme is Jesus Christ is the very best thing available, Agatha Merida, the good portion. And you and I must choose again and again to pursue him above all else. We see the same language used to refer to God in the Psalms. Psalm 16, verse 5, where it says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So what is this beautiful inheritance, this good portion, this very best thing that Mary has chosen? Simply put, it's the eternal life promised through faith in our Lord Jesus. Brian Chappell, writing for the Gospel Coalition, has published an excellent booklet uh, titled, What is the Gospel? I highly recommend it to you. It's, it's easily read in one sitting. But, but he describes, or, or he defines the gospel as this. Gospel simply means good news. That's, that's a literal definition. Gospel means good news. Gospel simply means good news. The Bible uses the term to refer to the message that God has fulfilled his promise to send a Savior to rescue broken people, restore creation's glory, and rule over all with compassion and justice. That's why a good summary of the gospel is found in 1 Timothy 1.15, where it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So that's what Mary's found. She's found the gospel, that Jesus Christ is dying for sinners. Now, when we hear the word sinners, I think our mind immediately goes... Back to that axe murderer, or a bank robber, or, or somebody who, who is, is, does other terrible things. But, but we can't hear it that way. Sinner literally means to miss the mark of God. So, so if God's mark is here, we, we can all agree we're, we're somewhere we're below it. We're missing that mark. The gospel is that God has found a way to reconcile us to himself. And that's so difficult and such a large task because God is pure and perfect and holy and immutable, which means he doesn't change. So God is always pure, perfect, and holy, and he cannot be in the presence of sin or he won't be pure, perfect, and holy. Let me describe it to you this way. Imagine the most pure glass of water that you can imagine. You ran it through the Brita filter like a million times. It's, it's like the perfect glass of water, all right? And this represents the holiness of God, all right? And then I've got a, an eyedropper, and it's filled with toxic waste, all right? How many drops of the toxic waste representing sin do I have to put into our pure cup of water before it's not pure anymore, before it's not, not unstained, so it's not holy anymore. Only one, right? I mean, what's the big deal? It still looks like a pure cup of water. I only put one drop in there. You can't even see it. It doesn't matter. It's been changed. It's been altered. It's no longer pure. And that's what, what happens if, if we were to come into the presence of God bearing our sin and that's why it cannot be allowed. The, the theological term 
for God's solution for this is double imputation. It's a very beautiful, very simple idea. So, so Christ came to earth, died on the cross. Okay? And in doing that, all of our sin was imputed onto him. It was taken and placed on him. And his righteousness was such that he could atone for all sin, past, present, future sin. He was able to do that work. All our sin was imputed to him. And then in the amazing part of the story, Christ imputes, gives us his righteousness. So that when God views us, he views us with the righteousness of Christ. Christ provided atonement between us and God. Break down that word in your mind for a second. Atonement, at one He is bringing us to be one with God again. I spent most of my life, I came to faith late in life in my 30s. I spent most of my life, and, and frankly, most of the world, whether they're hedging their bets and say they're not religious or whether they are part of one of the other world religions, believing that this was a scale. What we were really looking at was not that cup of water that, that, that couldn't, even main, couldn't even have the drop. What we really, what I really, spent most of my life thinking was that it was a scale. And if I could do one more good thing than bad thing, I was in. 51%, I'm going to heaven. It's not the way it works. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, when he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's a lot of what we see Mary doing here, right? Acclaim within my culture, reputation, family honor, my relationship with my sister. It's nothing. It's rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from anything good that I can do, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. R.C. Sproul says that the greatest misconception in our day is this, that God isn't concerned to protect his own integrity. He's kind of a wishy-washy deity who just waves a wand of forgiveness over everyone. Why would God ask his only son to come and die a horrible, painful excruciating death on a cross if it was only one of many ways. Yeah, you can, you can do it on your own, but I, I did the cross thing too, you know, just in case. No, Buddha, Krishna, they're, they're all fine too. I just also did the cross. It's not the way it works. There's only one way. It's so costly to God. It's so immensely catastrophic to God, so painful. There was only one way, and it was done, and it was done for you and I. And that's the inheritance. That's the, the good portion that Mary is finding. Okay, so we're back to Mary and Martha. Let's do Mary first this time. Mary is so overcome with love for Jesus and his teaching that she has chosen to break all social norms for the opportunity to sit and hear his teaching, to understand how to receive eternal life. She has understood that missing a meal... Okay, so we don't have dinner tonight. Who cares? 
or having shame come upon your family because you were judged poor hosts pales in comparison with what will be gained through faith in Jesus. It's rubbish, as Paul would say. Those people who think I'm an awesome host, they're going to die. I'm going to die. The meal that we're going to eat tonight won't satisfy for long. It's all rubbish. I, I, I must gain what Jesus is offering. Many people in the uh, first century and in the century since would die for this, for this very reality rather than be separated from Christ, rather than to deny, to deny him, to deny his deity. In fact, there were 10 men sitting in this room, the disciples, who would die horrible martyrs' deaths for this very reason. The only reason John didn't die a horrible martyr's death is because they boiled him alive and he wouldn't die. So I don't think he got off easy by any means. Such sacrifice would be made for this reality. A more modern missionary, Jim Elliott, he was a missionary to the Harane people of Ecuador, and he would ultimately die at their hands proclaiming the gospel to them. And he would do that of his own choice. He had modern weapons with him. He had a rifle in his plane. He chose not to use it. He sacrificed himself so that they might receive the gospel. In fact, his wife, after his death, took their young child, and along with the wife of another member of his party who was also killed at the Harani people, they went and lived in the most primitive conditions among these people in the, next, in the following years so that they might translate the Bible to them, for them, so that they could understand God's salvation. Can you imagine living among the people who had brutally murdered your husband so that you can provide them the Bible? But Jim said it best in his diary entry when he said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Mary knows this. You can't keep a good reputation forever. You can't... A meal won't satisfy you for that long. Paul knows this. He's, his rabbinic training, it's only, it's, it's, it's only going to last in this lifetime. His reputation, his, his status, it's, it's, it's all something that you cannot keep. So he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. All right, so let's look at Martha. Why is Martha rebuked for her service. Does, does Jesus not regard service as important? I don't think anybody here thinks that. And I, I could have pulled a dozen verses to illustrate it. I, I pulled one. Matthew 24, verse, starting in verse 45. And it says, uh, Christ speaking, Who then is the faithful and wise servant who his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Jesus talks of faithful servants being blessed. But he doesn't bless Martha. He reproves her in this instance. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. To just about everyone else present, Martha's serving probably appeared to flow from a gracious servant's heart. She's sacrificing mightily in this instance. But Jesus discerned differently. He saw that Martha was serving out of anxiety, not out of grace. 
J.D. Greer writes in his book, Gospel, Recovering the Power that Made Christianity Revolutionary, this. It's a long quote, but it's, <clears throat> but it's worth it. Stick with me. Without love, even the most radical devotion to God is of no value to him. Let me make sure that sinks in. You can gain all the spiritual gifts in the world. You can take the most radical steps of obedience. You can share every meal with the homeless of your city. You can memorize the book of Leviticus. And when you do, we'll invite you up here to recite it for everybody. You can memorize the book of Leviticus. You can pray each morning for four hours like Martin Luther. But if what you do does not flow out of a heart of love, a heart that does all those things because it genuinely desires to do them, it is ultimately worthless to God. John MacArthur picks up this theme in his book, Twelve Extraordinary Women, when he says, In other words, what Martha was doing and what she expected Mary to do was in itself perfectly fine and good. Nevertheless, what Mary was doing was better still. She had chosen the good part. The good part she had chosen would not be taken away from her, even for the sake of something as gracious and beneficial as helping Martha prepare Jesus a meal. Mary's humble, obedient heart was a far greater gift to Christ than Martha's well-set table. Christ doesn't need a meal from Martha. Let's think about this. Martha's a close friend of Jesus's, and she runs in, in, in the same circle. She, she knows all of his disciples, and, and so she's going to be aware of his ministry. She knows that in the... In, not too far preceding this, this incident, that he has fed over 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. She, she knows that Jesus can provide. But she wants to provide. She wants to take that burden. She wants to receive the accolades and, and, and the, the benefits that come from providing it. Jesus doesn't need Martha, to provide him a meal, he needs Martha's obedient heart. What's best for Martha, Jesus knows this and he loves her and he cares about her, is not to be running around trying to provide something that he can easily provide, but rather to sit and receive his teaching and live in the way he is calling her to live that leads to the good portion, the Agatha Merida, eternal life. Okay, I think we have three points of application for Christians, and I think we have three points of application for any among us this morning who may not be Christians, who have not made a choice to follow Jesus. Let's start with our applications for Christians. First application for Christians, if Jesus is just one thing on your list, you will never get to Jesus. Okay, I got to go to the well, I got to start the fire. I got to knead the dough. Okay, maybe I'll go sit with Jesus for a minute. Well, I got to check the fire again. You'll never get to Jesus if he's just one thing on your list. He has to transcend your list. He has to be the most important thing in your life. You cannot properly serve your wife, your children, your employer, yourself, your church, anything if Jesus is not the pinnacle, the focal point, the first and the last thing in your life. If you allow anything, your 401k, your vacation plans, anything to come before Jesus in your planning, in your thoughts, in, 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 in your reading habits, in whatever it is, you'll never get to Jesus. 
Second point of application. The motivation for your service is more important to Jesus than your service. It's a risky thing to say in a small church where we rely on everybody to serve. Tomorrow everybody will call and say, I'm not sure my motivations are correct. I'm going to take a little sabbatical from what I was doing. No, that's not the answer. Um, but we, we do all serve out of wrong motives. Okay? And Jesus doesn't care about our service. He cares about our motive for service. Jesus doesn't need our service. He needs our obedient hearts. So where we find ourselves serving out of motivations that are not a love for Jesus, we need to repent. We need to pray. We need to ask Him to change our motivations. Third application for the Christians, don't be conformed to the culture. Martha was conformed to the culture. She was doing all the things that she was supposed to do. And she was not walking with Jesus. Mary was not conforming to the culture in any way. And she was receiving a beautiful inheritance from Christ. Many things keep us from sitting at Jesus' feet today. Many things keep us from affirming that this is the inherent word of God. In this day and age, we're afraid that we'll be thought bigoted, small-minded. We, 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 might, we might even be thought stupid by our neighbors and our friends. Because for some reason, it's more acceptable to believe that this is all a cosmic accident, that there was a creator God who loved us and made this world for us. We must fight against conforming to the culture because it is all rubbish. The fact that your neighbor thinks you're a really cool Christian because you never really talk about the Bible or anything or, or whatever accolades you're receiving, whatever conversations you're not having out of fear, it's all rubbish. It will all go away. But what won't go away is the promises of Jesus in this book to bring us to live with him eternally in a new heavens and a new earth. All right, three applications for any among us this morning who may not be following Jesus. And let me just say as an aside, we're, we're so happy you're here. We, we need, we, we pray every week for people who don't know Jesus to come in and among us and sit and listen to the teaching and ask questions. And we pray that we will patiently answer those questions, and seek to walk alongside you. Jesus has provided for you just as he did for Mary. Okay, Maybe more so in this day and age than in any other time. You can download to your phone and to your computer books. You could order them from Amazon and have them on your doorstep in two days. You can go out to iTunes and download thousands of hours of sermons from the best Bible teachers in this generation and generations past completely for free and listen to them on your phone. It is, it is a tremendous abundance of resources that we have. But the primary way that Jesus has provided for you, just as he did for Mary, is through the local church. This is where Jesus intends us to sit week after week and hear his teaching and struggle with it and meet in community and live accountable lives. And if you're not in a church, we would, we would love to have you choose ours as the place to be. And if this church doesn't work for you for geographic reasons or other reasons, come tell us. We would love to find you a church where you live. But find a church that will preach the Bible, take God's word seriously, and live in an accountable community. 
Second point of application, set aside your preconceptions. Tim Keller says, one of the biggest obstacles in the way of people coming to Christianity is that they think they know about it already. And how true is this in Springfield, Missouri? We all think we, we know about Christianity. We have all the answers. It's not true. There are men a thousand times smarter than I am who have been reading this book for 70 years and still find new truths in it every day. There are things that we learn and grow in living in community that, that amaze me every week. Set aside your preconceptions. And come and, and humbly seek to learn and seek Jesus. Final application for non-Christians. Choose Jesus over the things of this world. C.S. Lewis says this better than, than I certainly could in his sermon called The Weight of Glory. And he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with, drecks, with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. To choose the things of this world and be afraid to lose the joys of this world is like a child making mud pies because we don't understand the infinite joy that is being offered us. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we're just grateful for your word. We are grateful that we can sit under its teaching. We are grateful that, uh, that Christ has come and paid the penalty for our sins. How amazing, Father, that you offer us the gift of eternal life free of charge, through faith in your Son. Lord, we just ask that, uh, that this message would go forth with us from this place and that we would be lights in the world. And for any of those among us, Father, who don't know you, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them and that they would come to faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.